The Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas Continuing his sermon for the fourth Sunday of Advent Penitence One day the good St. Teus said this to St. Paphnutius Father, what am I to do? The memory of my miserable life terrifies me. She had been a great sinner and was now filled with fear because of those past sins. The good saint replied, Take care not to raise your eyes to heaven. You who have time and again used them to cast dangerous glances, to flirt and the like. And do not raise those hands through which you have performed so many evil deeds. Throughout your whole life, exercise yourself in humility and confide yourself to the goodness of God. Fear, but hope at the same time. Fear, lest you become haughty and proud. Hope, lest you fall into discouragement and despair. Fear and hope ought never to be without one another, since fear without hope is despair, and hope without fear is presumption. We must then fill up these valleys formed by the fear which comes from the knowledge of the great imperfections and sins we have committed. We must fill them with confidence, mingled with the fear of God. Lower the mountains and hills. What are these mountains but presumption and pride, which are very great obstacles to our Lord's coming? He humbles and lowers the haughty and penetrates the depths of the heart to discover the pride that lies hidden there. It is useless to say to him, I am a bishop, a priest, a religious. Well and good, but if you are a bishop, how do you conduct yourself in this ministry? What is your life like? Are your morals congruent with your vocation? Are you full of arrogance and presumption, like the Pharisee in the Gospel? Or are you like the humble publican? The Pharisee was a mountain of pride. True, he possessed some outward semblance of virtue, but he boasted and gloried in it. He said boldly, I give you thanks, O God, that I am not like the rest of men. I pay tithes, I fast so many times a week, and so on. Seeing his pride, God rejected him. And that poor publican, who in the sight of the world was a high and rugged mountain, was lowered and made smooth in the sight of the divine majesty when he came to the temple. Not daring to raise his eyes to heaven because of his great sins, he remained at the entrance with a contrite and humble heart. As a result, he was worthy of finding grace before God. The glorious St. John adds, Make ready the ways. That is, repair those that are tortuous. Make them straight and even. Roads that twist and turn too much only weary and mislead travelers. We must make them straight and even for our Lord's coming. We must correct so many perverse and devious intentions and have only one, that of pleasing God by doing penance. This must be the only goal to which we aspire. We ought to be like the mariner, who, in steering his vessel, always keeps his eye on the needle of the compass, and those who sail their little boats always keep their hands on the tiller. 
we too must always have our eyes open to opportunities for penitence. Some people are unwilling to do penance until they are no longer able to take advantage of it. They say, God is so good and merciful. We can settle affairs with him later on. Let's enjoy ourselves now. At the hour of death, we will say a fervent, I have sinned, and God will pardon us. Is it not great presumption on their part to take advantage of the divine goodness by continuing to live in their sins? They do not realize that although God is infinitely merciful, he is also infinitely just. When his mercy is thus presumed, it provokes his justice. Make straight the way of the Lord. That is, acquire an even disposition by the mortification of your passions, inclinations, and aversions. An even disposition is the most pleasing virtue in the spiritual life, one for which we must work continually. Oh, my God, how utterly delightful it is to reflect upon the life of our dear Savior and Master. There we find this perfect equanimity of spirit shining brilliantly in the midst of all sorts of changing circumstances. Certainly, no one but he and the sacred and sinless virgin enjoyed it to such perfection. All the other saints labored diligently to acquire it, and to a degree have done so, but none perfectly. In each of them, something marred the perfection of their equanimity of spirit. This was true even for St. John the Baptist, for according to some doctors, he had sinned venially. How pleasing it is to find this even disposition in someone. Most of us are far from it, so changing and inconstant. There are some people who, when in a happy mood, maintain a pleasant conversation. But before we can turn around, they are disturbed and troubled. There are others we can speak to at this moment in a certain way, but within an hour we must use a totally different approach. A certain person will just now have been sweet and light-hearted, but in a little bit he will be harsh and bitter. Indeed, all we find among us are capriciousness and fickleness. These are the ways we should even out for our Savior's coming. To do this well, we must go to the school of the glorious St. John the Baptist and place ourselves, or rather ask him to receive us, among his disciples. For do you not see that this great saint sent his disciples to the Savior to be instructed by him personally? He instructed them into his hands, and our Savior kept them. After St. John's death, they became his disciples. If this glorious precursor receives us, he will surely place us in the hands of our Savior, who in turn will place us in the hands of the Eternal Father whom we shall praise for all eternity, together with him and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sermon 4 The Coming of the Divine Infant Sermon for Christmas Eve, December 24, 1613 Today you will know that the Lord is coming, and in the morning you will see his glory. Exodus chapter 16, verses 6 to 7 Holy Church usually prepares us for great solemnities with vigils to help us appreciate more the great benefits we have received from God in the events celebrated. In the primitive church, 
the faithful Christians desired to render satisfaction to our Lord in some way for the blood he had shed for them in dying on the cross. Therefore, they very carefully celebrated the time of feasts, solemnizing them to the best of their ability. Because of this desire, there was scarcely any feast without its vigil on which to prepare for the solemnity. This was done not only in the church, but also in the old law, where there were many preparations on the day before the Sabbath. The church wants us to prepare for the holy day of Christmas with a vigil. Not wanting us to be unprepared for so great a mystery, this loving mother tells us, You shall know today that our Lord will come tomorrow. That is, He will be born tomorrow, and you will see Him as an infant laid in a manger. These words are adapted from those used by Moses to alert the Israelites to the day that God had chosen to give them manna in the desert. He assembled them together and spoke thus to them, In the evening you will know that the Lord brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. He spoke of the Lord's coming in glory, although we all know that God does not go and come like one with a body. He is immutable, firm, solid, and without any movement. Nevertheless, Moses spoke in this way to indicate how great a benefit the manna was, suggesting that God himself had brought and distributed it to the Israelites. Because it was so great a gift, Moses had them carefully prepare themselves by reflecting on this great benefit in an effort to render themselves more worthy to receive it. In this same way, the church says to us, You will know today that the Lord is coming tomorrow. By this vigil, she wants us to ponder deeply on the grandeur of the mystery of the most holy nativity of our Lord. To do this better, let us first humble our understanding, realizing that we are totally incapable of exhausting the great depth of this uniquely Christian mystery. It is uniquely Christian inasmuch as only Christianity has ever fathomed how God is man and man is God. Actually, humanity has always had a certain inclination toward believing in something like the possibility of the Incarnation. But only Christianity has, in Jesus, ever come to know how it could be. I believe that certain Old Testament prophets and some privileged others knew of it, but the vast majority did not. Among the pagans, this instinct for something like the Incarnation manifested itself in strange, often bizarre ways. At least some of them believed that they could make themselves gods and be adored by, as such by others. For they thought that even if there were a supreme God who is the first principle of all things, there could nevertheless be many lesser gods, or that at least some men who shared in some way in divine qualities could be called gods. When Alexander the Great was near death, his mad, flattering, and foolish courtiers asked him, Sire, when do you want us to make you a god? In his reply, Alexander demonstrated clearly that he was not as foolish as they. You are to make me a god when you are blessed. By this reply he meant, It is not possible for unhappy, perishable, and mortal men to make gods, who by definition are happy and immortal. This has been taken from The Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas, 
translated by Nuns of the Visitation, and edited by Father Louis S. Fiorelli, OSFS. Published in 1987 by Tan Books and Publishers, Incorporated, Rockford, Illinois, and aired with permission of the publisher. This book may be purchased online at www.tanbooks.com or by calling toll-free 1-800-437-5876.